great. I'm typically here around this time of the year. It's great to see students, but it's also really encouraging to me to see a church, not just a, a pastor, but a church that loves students and raising up the next generation. Uh, and I say that uh, because 15 years ago, um, I was in Royal Rangers. And so funny enough, um, I dreamed that our Royal Ranger program would do something similar to the Pinewood Derby thing. Um, but we didn't have... <laughs> We didn't have as leaders that were as well equipped, I'll just say it that way. Um, and so we, <laughs> this is so great. So we knew that like it was part of Royal Ranger tradition to do Pinewood Derby racing. And so my dad and a few of his friends uh, were kind of our quasi Royal Ranger leaders. And they had us do a Hot Wheels Derby, which involves zero building and zero skills. We literally went to Toys R Us the night before. I remember this like it was yesterday. And then we fought our friends in an unchristlike manner to see who would get the best car. And then we would race them the next day. And then we gave ourselves medals. And it was awesome because it was just our church that we could talk into doing this. So everybody got a medal. Um, and so when I saw these guys up here, I was like, this is who I wanted to be. Uh, and, and that's probably who my dad wanted me to be, but he just he didn't do it for me. So I thought I would share that hilarious story. At least I thought it was funny. None of you did. That's okay. Um, and then 10 years ago, I was actually in fine arts. And I don't share that with many people because I was doing a category called short sermon, which is an oxymoron. Uh, I no longer give short sermons, right, five minutes long. I think my wife liked me a lot better when I was doing short sermons. Now I'm like, if I can hit it under an hour, I'm pretty happy, and she's still awake. Um, but I was doing fine arts 10 years ago. And then to think about the students that were up here leading worship or doing fine arts, and as I look at my own story and where God's taken me over the past 10 years, and now I have the privilege of leading a ministry on campus, I, I, I say that, um, one, I think, because the Holy Spirit wanted me to, but also because as you invest in young people, it's so easy, if you've known them for a very long time, to see their flaws and weaknesses and, and not realize where God might be taking them. Ten years ago, when I was doing fine arts on this very weekend, I had no imagination that I would be a thousand miles from home, working in a campus ministry, leading a staff team. A few weeks ago at our celebration Thursday, I think we have a picture of some of the students, but we did baptisms on the quad. We really believe in a public proclamation in water baptism. And these three women and two other guys were baptized on the steps right on the quad uh, at American University. And just to see students um, come to faith and know Christ um, and if I can trace back kind of why I felt called to ministry or why I became a campus missionary, to be honest, uh, for me it wasn't Royal Rangers, unfortunately, because the whole Hot Wheels incident, but it was Fine Arts Festival really did empower me to live on mission, empower me to see myself beyond just a student or just a high schooler or just a, a Christian or just someone that would consume kind of Christian culture. And so I did want to share that because my story does start there. And so it's really cool to kind of peek in every year at this time and see as you guys are raising up the next generation of leaders, you have no idea where God might take them and how God might use them. Uh, one other story before we get into the message um, this morning, I, I wanted to share this. I, I don't know about you, but there's this thing called Facebook. Have you guys ever heard of it? Okay, I'm still not funny. That's awesome. Um, so there's this thing called Facebook, and you guys all need coffee, but I'll fix that next time I come. And um, I know that on Facebook, right, it's, it's a great place for family photos, arguments, political disagreements, all that stuff that makes up most of our lives in our cell phones these days. And maybe you, um, like me or like some of my supporters uh, during this election season, saw um, what was happening at American University. You saw flag burnings, you saw protests, maybe you call them riots, however you'd parse that out. But I do want to share something. 
that I think is so powerful, and, and a pastor mentor of mine shared this, is that sometimes we, we have to trust that God is moving even when we can't see it. And when we can see the two or three things he's doing, we have to trust in his character that there's probably a thousand things he's also doing behind the scenes. So, you know, maybe you're watching Fox News, you see the Megyn Kelly special about American University, maybe you have thoughts about how students react, but I do want to just give you a peek on what's actually happening at campus. There's a girl, and her name is Naomi, and she was the one that was actually burning flags on campus right around the election time. And she got into contact with some students in Chi Alpha, and funny enough, it was one of our most politically and socially conservative students. He's in ROTC. He loves the American flag. And he asked her, he's a Chi Alpha student, and he asked her, hey, why did you do that? Because he realized that when people are hurt, they often take actions that may seem unfamiliar with us. And she told university officials at American University that he was the only person that asked her why she did it. That as her name is, is across newspapers and, and television specials, as she's received death threats and, and hate emails, or being at American University, a lot of support from the administration or support from different groups on campus. She said, one person asked me why I did it. And it just happens to be this guy named Frank. He's a very conservative student. Not necessarily like if I was doing mentoring assignments, I wouldn't necessarily have paired up Frank knowing his political background with Naomi, uh, but God brought them together, and he asked her in a moment, he, he put aside politics, and with pastoral concerns, said, hey, how are you? Why did you do that? Can you explain? Can you help me see it from your perspective? And what was so interesting is, although they disagree politically on about everything, he demonstrated compassion and love to her in that moment. Four days after that special came out, after she burned a flag on the quad, she was in Chi Alpha for the very first time. A day after that, she was sharing at an interfaith service. And I feel comfortable sharing it because she shared it in a public space. She said that because of the political affiliations of her family and because of her story, she didn't feel comfortable going home for Thanksgiving. She shared about um, being a survivor of sexual assault twice. And she shared how it felt like it was so difficult to rationalize how people in her life that believed in Jesus might take a certain stance. And I love that Frank in our community just engaged with her with the love of Jesus, didn't try to correct her politics, didn't try to say, you shouldn't be doing that, but just said, hey, I love you, you must be hurting. And what's crazy is that she was there last week when we were celebrating baptisms, and she was clapping and worshiping and engaging. And one of the most amazing stories of why I love being at a church like yours that believes in sending missionaries is because of this. She said something incredibly heartbreaking, but it showed how you and I get to be a part of the, the change of students' lives on campus when we support missionaries, and you guys support people like me, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, she said that she grew up in a pastor's home, and going to Chi Alpha was the very first time that she ever felt loved and accepted in a church. I don't share that so that you think that our ministry is great. Our ministry has tons of issues and problems because we have people. Um, but I do share that when you give to, to ministries or missionaries like Chi Alpha or like those in World Mission, man, you are making a difference. And can I encourage you to see past, you probably already know this, but I have to remind students, see past the images or the portrayals of things on the media uh, because you would think American University was like this place full of godlessness. And there's some of that for sure. But on Thursday, there was 100 students that were worshiping together, five people being baptized. We've had three students baptized in the Holy Spirit in the past few months. I mean, God is absolutely moving. And I think one of the ways that the enemy in this time and culture tries to distract us is to tell us the lie that God is not still moving. 
Um, because he can't make God not move. He has a limit to how he might move. And so then his strategy would be to tell you and I that God isn't moving. But can I tell you, just from being at American University, that God is absolutely moving. Uh, We have 19 student leaders that lead small groups all throughout the week. We've calculated that 96 hours of gospel conversations happen a week because of Chi Alpha. We are so grateful for your partnership and your support, and I just wanted to encourage you with that, man, God is working, and he's working when we see it and when we don't, and sometimes there's images that we see that would let us know that he's not, but he absolutely is, and so I hope that's encouraging for you. I know on the days that I want to give up, those stories are encouraging for me and keep me going. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into the word this morning. Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thanks for the opportunity to provide some updates to, Lord, a church that really feels like second home to me. God, thanks for the friendship of Pastor Stan. Thanks for the ability to be here. I just pray over the next few minutes, God, that you'd give me wisdom and clarity as we look to your word, which is good for teaching and correction and encouragement. God, will we see you clearly. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Lately, people in our ministry, staff and students alike, have been drawn to Hebrews 11 and then from Hebrews 11 to the Old Testament. And one of the reasons we're drawn to that, I think, is because in those stories in the Old Testament and in Hebrews 11, we see that there have been people who have walked the path that we are walking, that all of which took risks on their faith journey. I was recently reading a book called The Roots of Endurance, which talks about 17th, 18th, and 19th century missionaries and how they positioned their lives so that people would know Jesus. And many of them underwent incredible hardship. Like if you read it all in the Old Testament or if you look at the names of those represented in Hebrews 11, you'll find out very quickly that the greatest faith stories are sometimes the hardest to live. You'll find out incredibly soon that as you look at God's trajectory of using people, broken people, to reach others, that it's often in the mess where the miracles happen. See, growing up in the church, I misunderstood this idea of faith, thinking that it was a guarantee of safety and comfort now, not realizing that God gives us a peace that surpasses understanding, or to render it a different way, a peace that doesn't make sense, a peace that comes when circumstances wouldn't naturally generate Peace. And so today our study is in the person and the story of Deborah. And so we're going to be primarily in Judges 4 and 5. And you may find that as you've read it before, or as you look at it now on an app or on the screen, that Judges 4 and Judges 5 seem rather repetitive. And here's why Judges 4 tells a narrative account of things that happen in the story and the life of Deborah and her leadership. Uh, Judges 5 tells us um, from Deborah's perspective, but it also does so in the form of a song. And so as you read those passages, and you might be confused, like, what's happening? Is this thing happening again? As we look at the central figures of the story, we see that one is a, a narrative of what happened, and the other is a song in the tradition of oral storytelling, a celebration of what God did in what had happened. And so 4 and 5, are, are they complement each other, but it's not necessarily a, a retelling. It's more of a celebration. And so in Judges 4 and 5, we see several key characters, Deborah and Barak, and we see that there's God's people, there's armies, enemies of God, and all this begins to play out in a very unique way. And so before we jump directly into 4 and 5, I want us to reference um, a gateway into this story in Hebrews 11, and it happens in verse 32. The writer of Hebrews says this, What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. 
And so I love that there are so many people that have followed God faithfully from which I can take encouragement because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever that even the writers of Scripture say, and the book would be too long. And there is way too many people that I could mention that I don't have time for. And so Deborah, if you're taking notes, she'd be included in this list under prophets because she was a prophet. And in fact, she's actually both a prophet and a judge. And that kind of dual role is only given to one other person in Scripture, and that's Samuel. And so she's included in the sentence about prophets who did amazing things um, because of their relationship with God. Or better yet, God did amazing things through her. But she's also referenced in a unique way um, through the mentioning of Barak. Barak is mentioned in this passage only because of the faithfulness of Deborah. So for me, this gives me a kingdom principle right off the bat. Great godly leaders leave their mark on other people and so that those other people would be lifted up because of their leadership. I love that Deborah and her faithfulness as a leader and her faithfulness to God does so in such a way that she doesn't even need her name mentioned in the story of God as it's told in Hebrews 11. And that in fact her leadership is so strong that she elevates somebody else into this written account who wouldn't be there without her investment in their life. That, for me, is a difference between the leadership that we might see in the culture and, unfortunately, sometimes in the church than leadership that's kingdom-minded. Kingdom-minded leadership points to Jesus and lifts up others. Self-centered leadership is all about me. It's all about what I did. And I was talking to some students as we're getting towards the end of the academic year. I don't think that most Christians struggle with a me, me, me type of pride. I think that more, more often than not, Christians struggle with an I type of pride where they'll tell stories about God, but they seem to play the hero. I find that in my own life. I typically don't brag, just me, 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 here's my things, I'm cool, all this stuff. But I do tend to tell stories that start with I and that include just enough God that I would trick someone into thinking that I'm giving him glory. But I'm really just saying I'm pretty awesome as a missionary. Please, please support me, right? And so as you and I think about our lives and think about kingdom leadership, Deborah is a prime example of leadership done well. I like to say it like this. Kingdom leadership is about making a difference and not making a point. At every opportunity, every intersection of ideas, you and I have a choice. Will we make a point or will we make a difference? And often, too, those are not aligned. In my marriage, in my family, in our ministry, often I can say something that will make a point, but very, very seldom will that lead to making a true difference. Judges 4.4 gives us a snapshot into the life of Deborah. It says this, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidus, was leading Israel at the time. I love that rendering. She was leading Israel. If you have an older translation of the Bible, it might say that she was judging Israel. Let me explain. When you and I think of a judge or judging, we might think of robes, a wig, Judge Judy. I don't know what you think about. But in scriptural um, history, in the Old Testament, this rendering is actually more accurate that she was a leader. Jewish sources tell us that the judges were charismatic leaders that were acting on the behalf of God for the betterment of God's people. So when we think about a judge, it's not judicial in the sense that we would understand it because government operated very differently in the eyes and hands of God in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. She was a leader, she was an intermediary, and she was an absolute at the forefront of God's people trying to lead them into God's will. 
So here's some context before we dig in to the actual story that happens in Judges 4 and is repeated in a song in Judges 5. Here's the context of what's going on with the people of God at this time. As you may know, the people of God in the Old Testament have a terrible habit of rebelling against God. I love reading the Old Testament because it reminds me of my life and my story. That I've seen God's faithfulness time and time again, yet also often and easily forget God. That's why in the New Testament, the term that's repeated so often is to stand firm. Or Paul encourages, do not forget, as I pray for you, brothers and sisters, what the Lord has done. We have a propensity to forget things. If you, like me, and you grew up in church, you've, you've read the Old Testament or heard a sermon, and you're like, how can these people miss it? I often feel like at that moment, the loving Father is in heaven saying, Blaine, how do you miss it? How do you forget so easily? So Israel is um, God's chosen people, designed as what we know as a city upon a hill, designed to bring God glory, to bring God worth and attention. And then we see that there's something happening at the start of almost every chapter in Judges 1 through 5, is that a judge will pass away, and that the people of God will end up, because of God's grace and benevolence towards free will, he'll give them kind of the result of their actions in the previous generation. They'll ask for a judge, and then we'll see each chapter a microcosm of a story where their actions are kind of they're reaping what they've been sowing. And, and Deborah is so interesting. She's the only judge recorded in the Old Testament that's a woman. She's one of a handful of prophets in the Old Testament that's a woman. And and every time that there's a gap in the leadership of God's people, he raises somebody up. And this time, in Judges 4 and 5, he's raising up Deborah. And it's all within this cycle of faithfulness and rebellion. Faithfulness and rebellion. So Judges 4 takes us to the place where the Canaanites, the enemies of God all throughout history, and particularly in this time, it shows that God hands over his people to the Canaanites for a time because of their rebellion. And here's why this is important to understand properly. God allows this in history um, because as we see that people make choices, God in his infinite wisdom and love and kindness respects people's choices. But there's hope because he's willing to use the results of those choices for his glory and our maturity if we'll allow him. That's the idea of Redemption, And many of us understand this, right? Like we have circumstances that we're in because we've made bad decisions or even more heartbreaking uh, to the Father heart of God is that we might be in difficult circumstances because of choices or decisions somebody else has made and we're a recipient of it. But regardless of how you got there, God so loving and infinite saying, I'm willing to redeem this. I'm willing to rescue us. With this enemy intended for bad, I will bring about Good. Romans 8 tells us for those of us that were called according to his purpose that we are love and that he is making all things good. What is good to God? It's his glory and our maturity in him. And that's not just a story that starts in the New Testament, but it's all throughout the story of how God interacts with people. What's interesting is God hands over his people for a time to their enemy. Sometimes it's a decade, sometimes it's more. We see that when their pride is broken, they discover their true identity. In other words, my pastor says it like this, when their self-sufficiency is broken, they can then begin to rely on the Holy Spirit. You can't be both full of yourself and full of the Spirit. So Judges 4 gives us this idea um, that there's a judge that had passed, Deborah is now stepping up into leadership in a unique role. 
And now the people of God, they're in a season of rebellion. They are not in a season of faithfulness. And they are now under the rule of the Canaanites. Jabin is the king. And the scripture mentions that the infamous commander Cicero, one of historically the most brutal dictators, military commanders, violent uh, that God's people had ever seen, God has delegated authority to them in his story for God's people in this season, ultimately, as we know, to bring his people back. So Deborah steps up, and it's where we're introduced to her. So we're now caught up in context to Judges 4.4. And it's important that we realize as we hear that she's both a judge and a prophet. We talked about understanding what it means to be a judge, but I think it's helpful, and I find this on campus with students, to help them understand the role and the function of prophet and prophecy. In the Old and New Testament, it's important that we realize that prophecy is usually primarily focused on truth-telling before it's focused on future-telling. It can include both. It sometimes includes both. But the real heart of prophecy, the real heart of all the manifestations of God in the Spirit is to bring truth, is to point us to Jesus. And so she's not necessarily like a walking fortune cookie just leading people. No, she is proclaiming truth. She's judging people on matters in which ways they might be rebelling against God. But she's proclaiming the goodness of God in his character, calling for the people to come back from rebellion into faithfulness. What's interesting is that as I read this story and I think of the campus that I minister on, American University, and I think of your community, Rockville, Maryland, I think of our country, and I think of what's happening in the cultural and political climate, what the Holy Spirit reminds me as I read this is that the world is in need of more Debras. That you and I are called to be a Debra to those around us. And when I look at my campus, I think that there are very few students who have actually experienced a Deborah in their lives, and I'll talk about that in a moment. So unlike the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah who go out and speak over people, Deborah actually has people coming to her. So that tells you about the significance of her leadership. People are coming to Deborah to ask for advice, even when they're in a season of rebellion. She's under this palm tree, scripture tells us. Uh, the nickname is called Deborah's Palm Tree, and it's a famous landmark in this culture in this time because of the wisdom and the leadership that she dispensed to God's people. She's under there during the day at all hours, and people are coming to her, and she is empowered by the Spirit to lead well. What's interesting is that her leadership is shaped by many things, but one of the primary things is this. She's going to call out characteristics of God in somebody before they even see it or before they even reveal it. And that's the gift of encouragement, of affirmation. In other places, in Hebrews and also in Philippians, we're told that encouragement and affirmation in the, in the life of the church, in the, in the life of believers, it actually helps us to see God more clearly. And Hebrews 3 says that it actually helps us against sin's deceitfulness. That affirmation, that encouragement, when it's gospel-centered, when you're calling out characteristics that you see that God has put in somebody, it actually helps us fight against sin, which is so intriguing because my strategy for fighting against sin is usually like, ah, just don't do it, which doesn't usually work very well. But Scripture tells us that affirmation is actually a weapon that we can use to engage in spiritual warfare because I think it helps someone play at a different level, if you will. It helps someone to play beyond what they think their capability is. We see this happening in this story. Barak is a military commander. He's not a judge. 
And what's interesting is that in the story, Deborah summons him, which again speaks to her leadership and the respect that she has amongst the people of God. And she basically is in this role of a leader who is speaking bold things about Barak and his leadership so that he would lead in his area of life in the military and they would walk in God's faithfulness and providence as a people. So in Judges 4, 8, she says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go out. I know you're afraid of the enemies of God. You've heard crazy things about this commander and this king, but you're going to go out. And she's given him the directive. And then he basically says in 4.8, I'll go, but only if you come with me. <laughs> Which I love that. To me, it reminds me in parallels, Moses saying that to God's spirit. I only want to go if you're with me. And so Deborah, not a military expert at all, becomes the triple threat. She's a judge, a prophet, and now she's somehow involved in commanding the army. She's the only prophet or judge that we know of in Scripture that actually goes into battle after directing God's people. She is incredibly brave, and I love that she is not afraid of hostility. See, I think that sometimes we make an assumption, at least I do, that if I talk about Jesus, that people won't respond. But then I realize that a measure of success isn't people's response, my obedience. I have the privilege once a month to speak at an interfaith chapel service on our campus, a building which houses 28 different faith groups. Every month I ask if I can speak about Jesus, and they let me, and so I do. I don't expect necessarily an altar call. I don't necessarily think that, man, this time everybody, all the other chaplains are going to become followers of Jesus, although there is some interesting conversations with some chaplains that are open to the gospel. But I do that because my job and your job isn't to facilitate or cultivate a spiritual success story, but instead for us to be obedient to what God's called us to. So I think sometimes because we, we love and, and are encouraged by testimonies, we forget that there is a beauty in the testimonies that are not yet. That there is, God, there is something God-honoring when we offer Jesus to someone and they turn it down because we've been obedient. And we've affirmed the image of God in them because God would honor their choice. And so we need to now in relationship love them but still kind of honor where they're at. And that's a very difficult part that I have and that you have in our lives. How do we contextualize the relationships and the gospel in that way? So she just became a warrior. Her resume is looking great. Later in Judges it says she goes into battle with him. So I love that she's not only willing to tell people hey, this is God's plan for you. She's willing to walk with them. In Chi Alpha, we say it like this. Discipleship is not about being a travel agent, but it's about being a tour guide. It's not about sending people and saying, you go out there and be careful, okay? Um, it's walking with people, saying, I'm going to show you where I've been. I'm going to be a little bit ahead, but not ahead of the group. I'm not doing it from the comfort of a desk. I'm, I'm doing it with you. She says this in Judges 4.9, certainly I will go with you. And then I love this. But because of the course you're taking, this honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sesar into the hands of a woman. I love it. She's like, yeah, I'm going to go with you, Barak, but you've kind of forfeited the glory, the trophy on this one. And counterculturally, now a woman's going to get the glory for a military battle, which is very uh, uncommon, even in God's narrative. So Deborah goes with Barak to um, Kadesh. She goes in, and what's interesting is they win very easily. And then we find out later in Judges 
that the prophecy wasn't about Deborah getting the honor and credit because she's a kingdom-minded leader. Instead, it's about Jael. She's mentioned in Scripture very briefly later in Judges. It gets a little PG-13, but her husband was an ally of Sisera, this person who was against God, and he goes to sleep, kind of gets some drink, some milk in her tent, and her husband's out, and so she actually just, it's kind of crazy, she gets a stake and she just drives it through his head. So that's PG-13, it's about as violent as I'll get, I'm totally not about that stuff. But what's interesting is that in this story, we see God using unlikely people to do extraordinary things. And all that is the prerequisite is a willingness. For Deborah, for Jael, and then even for Barak. I love that Deborah especially, is an example to me, and I think serves as an example to you, how important it is to hear the voice of God and then to act. I love what Spurgeon says in Holy Spirit Power. He says, may the faintest of whispers from the Holy Spirit be made law to us. In other words, would we follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit as if they were a big deal because they are? As surprised as you and I are to understand the complexities and, and the uniqueness to Deborah's role. In that time and culture, she was not expected to be a judge. She was not expected to be a prophet. She was not expected to be a military commander. But she listened to God, and she responded to God's expectations and not the cultural understanding. I think that many of us have experienced uh, ambivalence or a hostility to Christianity. Maybe culture is telling you and I that we shouldn't speak about our beliefs, that our beliefs aren't well thought out, that our beliefs are just a, 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 an, an umbrella or a blanket for bigotry. But what God tells us is that we are actually sent out so that he would reconcile people to himself through us, 2 Corinthians 5, that you and I are Christ's ambassadors. And I love this illustration that a missionary once shared he said, it's interesting that when you think of, of an ambassador and you think about being an ambassador of heaven, the power that comes with being an ambassador, right? In the D.C. area, we know that, you know, ambassadors, depending on which country they're from, have certain pool. I always think about it when I'm driving and someone with diplomatic plates cuts me off, takes my parking spot, and I can say, my parents are diplomats overseas, and I'm sure they do it too. I'm like, are you kidding me? No, you're a terrible driver, and I don't want to say anything because I don't want to get like arrested for the kingdom of Bahrain or something. Um, but I think about that, and I think that many of us have been living out the Christian life as if we're from a country that has no power. As if we're from a country that's made believe. But if we're citizens of heaven, which we are in Christ, and if we're ambassadors of Christ with the Holy Spirit interceding for us, with Christ at the right hand speaking on our behalf, then we have all power that we need. Romans 8 says that we are more than conquerors. It's been said like this before, that you and I will never have more spiritual authority than we already have in Christ now. See, oftentimes I'm tricked into thinking, God, I need more authority. God, I need, I need more authority. And I think he's saying you're a little bit more educated than your obedience has allowed. Sometimes I want to read one more book, listen to one more sermon, go to one more seminar before I can engage cross-culturally the gospel with students at American University, before I meet with the president of the Atheist Club, before I meet with other chaplains and share about why I believe in Jesus, before I meet with university officials. But what Jesus so lovingly tells us is that he has positioned me and positioned you and empowered us so that right now we can act and make a difference for him. That we don't need to wait on something else. And Deborah didn't wait. Barak did wait. So he, he gets his name mentioned in Hebrews 11. He doesn't get the credit in Judges, but God still uses his story. I love that the faithfulness of God is kind. 
that even though we have this picture of God in the Old Testament of being unkind, He's incredibly gracious. He's willing to allow us to make mistakes and then recover and repent from them. As I think through my story as a campus missionary, as I think of how God might be wanting to use you you in your workplace, in your school, and in your neighborhood, I would want you to consider that God might be asking you to be a Deborah, to call out characteristics of God that you see in people before they've earned it, to not just lead a life of honor and respect, but to be a prophetic voice that would tell people that you are made for something more. Like John 10 says, that you have an abundant life in your future if you trust in Christ. As we consider our response as we close, there's a thought that I do have to mention as we think through what this might look like in our lives. I think there's always a temptation when we talk about truth or prophecy to do it but not do it well. There's a few things that I see on campus when students encounter Jesus in a real way. There's a few ways that maybe in their newness they don't understand the best way in which God might want to move. Sometimes we have a student that will come to Christ and they'll be so radical for Jesus, they've accidentally become obnoxious, right? So like, I'll be like, hey, how is your class? God is good. I'm like, I, I know, I work for him. I know he's good, okay? He's also my dad, okay? We're, I'm pretty familiar. I was actually just asking how your criminology class was, but cool. I'll talk to you next week. Um, or we see that we, um, we see the blessing of God in someone's life from the gifts of the Spirit, but without the fruit of the Spirit. We see a disconnection of, of charisma and, and character. We see a disconnection between uh, a man platform and how they might serve Jesus in their private lives. But I also think that when I think of the story of Deborah, I think that we often can do two things. We can either retreat um, into ourselves and into our communities and think, man, I don't have anything to offer the world, which is a lie. Or we can overcorrect, um, as we've done throughout church history, and we can then kind of know that we're right and forget that we're only made right because of Christ. Because it's possible to be both right and prideful. And if you guys have any kids, okay, I have a two-year-old and he's proven that to me every single day. Sometimes he's right, but he also knows that he's right. What's interesting about Deborah is that she is humble before the Lord. It's not about her name. It's about people walking in the will of God. Being in campus ministry for almost eight years, the Lord really convicted me when I first started studying this and sharing about Deborah with our students. And he's reminded of me this week is if we believe God in his word and if we know that the image of God is in everyone, right? Not everyone is a children of God yet, but everyone is an image bearer of God. Then all people that you and I know, that you and I argue with, that you and I disagree with are precious in his sight. Here's what the Lord spoke to me this week as just a conviction for me as we're wrapping up the academic year. He said, why are some of your students in your ministry? So this is not even outsiders. I have sometimes have a hard time loving students in my own ministry. Um, he said, why are they precious in my eyes but not in yours? Why is that student no longer precious to you? And I realized because I had been trying to love them with my own strength, that I had been trying to love them or care for them or see the best for them according to what I could offer instead of helping connect them or being empowered by the Spirit to what Jesus may offer. And that sounds like a little bit like of a pastoral semantic distinction that doesn't matter, but if you've ever tried to minister to someone, you know it matters very deeply. There are people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, that you may not like, but the Lord cares deeply about. And guess what? You and I have the same story. Scripture tells us that while we are yet enemies with God, while we are at enmity with God, He was for us and sent His Son. 
And he did that knowing that some would still reject him. What does it mean to be a Deborah? I don't think it means saying the truth louder. I don't know if that's really working. It's not working on my campus. But what is working is saying the truth in love, in kindness, in a winsome way. And let me tell you this, no matter what someone's political or religious beliefs or affiliation, everyone in this season of our country and what's happening around the world is in need of love. Very few students I meet be like, nope, I'm being loved too well by my professors, by my clubs, by my family. And you know that's true. Like you would appreciate if someone gave you an encouraging word because you're in need. So as I see Rockville and I see DC, may I encourage you to consider how you could be a prophetic, encouraging voice in love, speaking truth, so that God would make people that are image bearers into children. Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me? God, I thank you that not only while I was messed up, but while I'm still broken, you're willing to work in me, work through me, and even work in spite of me. God, I, I come repenting. You know this. This week, just, man, there were some students in our ministry that had lost, I had lost the preciousness. I had lost my foreness for them. I was more frustrated at them than frustrated for them. God, would we not fight with people, but would we fight for people so that they would know you? God, as we prepare to respond, I just, I want to ask, and maybe there are people in here that feel your Holy Spirit move in them, that you want them to be a Deborah in the lives of their family and their friends, in the social circles that they're in. And it's more than social media activism. It's more than just saying the right answer, but it's about living a life like Jesus and knowing that you will draw 